0: Please bow with me as we pray. Lord, we ask for your help now to hear your word, that you would humble us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we come before you to listen to your word, to be changed, to conform to your righteous standards, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and your fulfillment of the law in Christ, Lord, that we would rely and depend and trust more in him. Uh, Lord, pray you would speak through me words that are true today. Lord, we pray that you would stir up our affections as we listen to your word and remind us of your faithful care for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does God do with the person who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe they live in a remote area, remote part of the world, maybe in a, a place where governing officials don't allow the church to legally function. They don't permit kind of a closed country, so to speak, where the gospel is not legally allowed to be preached. What does God do with those people? Well, just a few weeks ago, a member of this church called me up and asked me that question. He was sharing the gospel with a classmate and, and he wanted some help. But how do I answer this question? This is a question I got asked. And I want to know how to go back and, and answer this individual who was a Muslim uh, to tell him more about truth about God and and what He's done in in Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing, by the way, call any of our pastors if you have questions like that. We'd love to hear about you sharing the gospel. We'd love to do our best that we can to try to help you in those conversations. I went on to to point them to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We talked a little bit how people are without excuse and God revealing His glory clearly in creation. And uh, therefore, we are, we are compelled and, and motivated to take the good news of Jesus because people need to hear about God's glory revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. We, we spoke about the fact and the reality that God judges sin, not merely an acceptance or rejection of the gospel. God judges sin. We talked about that. I'm not going to get all into that. Happy to talk more. If that's your question here today, I'll be at the top of the ramp afterwards. be happy to talk to you more about that. But I, I bring this question up to highlight that if you've spent much time Christian talking with those who are not yet Christians, uh, about God, likely you've fielded questions about God's judgment. Maybe that's an objection that gets raised to the truth about Jesus Christ. A question like, uh, why would God punish anyone and send them to hell? Those types of questions can get at how can a good God be loving on the one hand and just on the other. How can those scales of justice and, and mercy weigh out Equally. These types of questions they, they wonder, they even question will, will God do the right thing? Is he fair? Is he just? Is he good? Our passage today shows Abraham wrestling with God's justice, wrestling with God's righteousness. in Genesis chapter 18, we see a moment of, of training for Abraham. A moment of training where the Lord guided him to a deeper understanding of His character. and As we come here this morning as God's people, may the Lord guide us in Genesis 18 to more deeply understand His character and His ways that we would keep His ways and reflect His glory. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be in the last part of the chapter today in verses 16 through 33. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, go ahead and grab that. The best way to stay engaged uh, in the sermon is to follow along in the Bible. Uh, So turn to page 13. And the Pew Bible, and we say this every week, if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We'd love to give that to you for you to read more about who God is and what he's done in Jesus. Let me read through all of this passage, uh, Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? For the fifty righteous who are in it, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Last time we were in Genesis a couple weeks ago, we read the truth at the beginning of chapter 18 that, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. He does whatever he pleases, but are his ways just? The tension here in this passage. And we see that when God disclosed to Abraham his plan to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, that Abraham appealed to God's justice as he asked, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I mean, do what is right? Abraham's intercession for these cities, and that's what he's doing. We've talked often that, that Abraham was speaking to the Lord, and God's people still do that today. We do that in Prayer, Abraham in that time was able to speak directly to the Lord. And this is an intercession, almost a a conversation between he and the Lord. And this conversation, this intercession for these cities and the Lord's response to it ended up clearly displaying God's character. God didn't need to be changed that day, Abraham did. And Abraham grew in his confidence that day that the Lord is just and right in all of his ways. Well, the main idea that I want you to see in this text this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The main idea, our confidence is found in God who always does what is right. Our confidence is found in God who always does what is right. We've talked often that the book of Genesis is a book of comfort. Right, so just like we turn to the book of Psalms, and we get comforted through the truth of God's Word and the Psalms, and maybe there's other places you turn, like even Romans 8 that we heard this morning in our assurance of pardon. Think about the book of Genesis, and as we've been studying this book, how much comfort there is for God's people, how much confidence we can grow in it, in who God is and His character, and that's what we see this morning. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I, I want you to see two ways that a knowledge of God's justice shapes us. Two ways that a knowledge of God's justice shapes us. The first way is in verses 16 through 21. God reveals His plans to train us in His ways. The first way that we see a knowledge of God's justice shaping us, God reveals His plans to train us in His ways. Well, after sharing a meal with the Lord and two angels, that's who we see this group of three men revealed to be at the beginning of chapter 18. Uh, the story picks up here in verse 16 with Abraham walking with this group of three as they look down towards Sodom. Now, we've heard about Sodom before. In Genesis chapter 13, we read that Sodom was the place that Abraham's nephew Lot, when they separated, he went to live near Sodom. And the comment given there is that Sodom was filled with wicked people who are great sinners against The lord Not a very great place to live, a wicked place full of great sinners against the Lord. And as this group of three walk toward Sodom, we find two speeches from the Lord here in this passage. You see, and the Lord said, and the Lord said there in verse 17 and and verse 20. The first speech there in verse 17, uh, presumably the the Lord was speaking to the two angels there. As he reflected out loud his thoughts about Abraham. The question the Lord asked in verse 17 was if he should reveal to Abraham what he was about to do in judging Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, which even is a sign of God's care. He's kind of thinking out loud there. The decision's already been made, but I think it communicates that God was considering what was best for Abraham, making it clear that what God does is for his glory and for the good of his people. In verse 17, we see that question. Now we know from reading the whole passage, God chose to disclose to Abraham what he was about to do. And and verses 18 and 19 give two reasons why God chose to reveal his plan to Abraham. Both of these reasons highlight important roles that God called Abraham to fulfill. So there in verse 18, the, the first reason that God chose to inform Abraham of his plan Was that Abraham was chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations? It says there in the verse of 18, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That was the covenant promise from the Lord. So Abraham had the important role of mediating God's blessing to the nations. So, as God's chosen one to be the father, of a multitude of nations, it was fitting for God to reveal to Abraham the judgment that was about to take place and wiping out surrounding cities around him. He wanted Abraham to be clear what that judgment was about, why God issued that type of judgment. A second reason why God chose to reveal his plan to Abraham is there in verse 19. Abraham had the important role to teach his children, to teach his descendants and his household to do righteousness. Righteousness and justice, to keep God's ways. He wanted Abraham to to learn his ways and to know his ways more deeply so that he could keep God's way and train his children to do the same. Look at verse 19. The Lord said, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God chose Abraham which speaks of God's grace in election. And we see that the one purpose of God's choosing Abraham was so that he would teach his children. He would teach the future generations about the Lord, about God's righteousness, about God's justice in his character, that they might keep his ways and reflect his character to the surrounding nations who did not know the one true God. As the father of a multitude, Abraham had the responsibility that every father does to teach his children about the Lord, to know His ways, and to keep His ways. You know, I'm so thankful for the the many fathers in this congregation. We prayed for you this morning. Uh, We want you to know as a church, and I'm I'm thankful to be numbered among you, we want you to know as a church we we are behind you, uh, here to encourage you and to equip you and to pray for you in the very special responsibility that God has given you to lead in your home and to teach your children about the Lord. What a great pursuit to give yourself to. And I hope today you hear something encouraging about God that would help you know God and delight in Him more, that would overflow, and you speaking to your children as you live life along the way, pointing them to this God and to keep His ways. Well, Abraham was to teach his children, to teach his household the way of the Lord. He was to train them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, I want to be clear on what doing righteousness and doing justice means in the Bible. To do righteousness is to conform to God's will. It's conforming to God's will, His thoughts, His ways. To do justice is to make decisions in line with God's will. And so as Christians, we offer to the world something that it longs for, it thirsts for righteousness and justice. But as those who by God's grace have been shown righteousness and justice of God found in His Son, Jesus Christ, we are called to display God's character around us. And the way that we live, the way that we speak, and the way that we act, the way that we treat others, we're to do righteousness and justice. God's people, we're to do right because we belong to a God who always does what is right. God's people are to love justice and to do justice because we belong to a God who's the standard for justice and therefore all his ways are just. The Lord's first speech had to do with God's motivation for disclosing his plan to Abraham. In the second speech, starting in verse 20, the attention turned to to Sodom and Gomorrah and what God was going to do There, so that speech in verse 20 appears to be spoken out loud for Abraham to hear. God wanted him to know his plan. In the rest of the chapter, we see this because Abraham is responding to God's revealed plan. Now, God gave the reason for his judgment there in verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was so great because the sin and the wickedness of the people there was so grave. Now, the name of the city, Sodom, provides the base of the word, sodomy. It's a place of of wickedness. Sins outside of normal sexuality. God-ordained sexuality. Sodom was known for rampant sexual perversion, homosexual sin, going against God's created order and His natural design. We'll read more about that and think more about it, Lord willing, Next week, we're in chapter 19, we'll think more about that. But we see here that the wickedness was so grave there, and therefore the, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great. Now this word outcry, it's seen throughout the Old Testament as a cry of distress. A, a cry coming from those who are oppressed by evil and wickedness. We, we saw something like this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, when, when Cain killed his brother Abel. The Lord said the blood of Abel was crying out to him from the ground. There was an outcry of wickedness and injustice. So this outcry, it's an outcry of grief, of oppression. And this outcry in verse 20 and 21 likely refers to those offended and oppressed there in those cities who were crying out for justice. Crying out maybe even to a God that they didn't know. A cry of grief and wailing. Well, it's important to understand in verses like these that the Lord... He hears outcries of oppression. He acts to pursue justice. He heard outcries of injustice then, and God hears them still today. He hears cries that human ears can't hear. The cry from the womb of the unborn, those whose lives are taken by the evil of abortion, Human judges don't hear those cries, but the judge of all the earth does, and he cares, and he moves. God hears the cries of a wife who's been abandoned by her husband. God hears the cries of the persecuted, the oppressed, those who are suffering. God knows and he hears every single cry. He cares on him. Sometimes his justice is delayed more than what we like, but God's timing is perfect and right, and God will not leave the guilty unpunished. He hears and he moves to execute justice. These two cities, they were so full of wickedness that the Lord said he would go down himself to see how bad it was, making it clear he will see to it himself that justice is executed. Now, we see this phrase in verse 21, the Lord saying, I will go down to see." Now, this is another place where we see anthropomorphic language used here in Genesis. We've already talked about this before in Genesis, but simply put, this is language that ascribes human actions to God in order to communicate a truth. Now, the Lord knows everything. He doesn't need to come down and have a closer look like you and I do to understand anything. If this is human language used to make a point about God. God's different from us. He's all-knowing. He knew all that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. So, So what does this phrase mean? Well, again, Scripture helps us best interpret Scripture. We see the same phrase, the Lord went down. Back in chapter 11, verse 7 at the Tower of Babel, His going down at Babel was for judgment to disperse the nations. And here in chapter 18, it's the same thing. Again, God didn't need a closer look to figure out what was going on. He was moving down to judge, to execute justice. Now furthermore, this anthropomorphic language, it serves a purpose to show that God's justice is based on what is true. So the Lord saying, "I will go down to see," assured Abraham that God's justice is based on a full and accurate account of the truth. All the details there examined and known, meaning God always does what is Right, he never issues judgment on a case that needs to be overturned later because there was witnesses that weren't interviewed or evidence that was left out or new evidence surfaces to show a wrong judgment. That doesn't happen with God. He's letting it be known that he knows everything and he acts in accordance with the truth to execute his justice. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus taught the same truth: that God sees and hears everything; that we will all give an account to Him. You see, Jesus revealed. God's plan. That there's a day of coming judgment before God when Jesus returns. It's a day of judgment coming when Christ returns and everyone will give an account. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, here's what Jesus said I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words, You will be condemned. God knows every word, every encouraging word that we use, every gracious word, every word that brings Him glory and praise, and and He knows every careless word that we use. Those words we mutter under our breath, those words sometimes that just remain inside that don't come out, God knows them, and we will answer to Him for that. And we should care more about God's opinion and what He thinks about our words and not just our neighbor's opinion. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder how this knowledge affects how you think about how you live your life. Even with Matthew 12, about the words that you speak. Every careless word is accounted for by God. Well, how would that change the way we think about our speech this week? How we choose to use our words. You see, a knowledge of God's justice, it trains us to keep His ways. Knowing that we will give an account before the Lord, it it reminds us of God's holiness and encourages us in our holiness that we want to honor Him ultimately with what we say and what we do, that we have a fear of the Lord, meaning that we care most about His judgment and His opinion and His thoughts. Those who've come to know God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they will bear good fruit. That's another part of Matthew 12. It's just that good fruit comes out of those who know the Lord, who are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are those who God has disclosed His plan to for salvation and judgment. We've been called to live righteously until we go to be with the Lord, or until Christ returns. And the comfort we have is that the Spirit of God in us is at work shaping us to do justice and to do righteousness, to conform to God's Word and His will, to bear good fruit, and to keep His ways. I want us to consider a second way that a knowledge of God's justice shapes us. There in verses 22 through 33, God's people confidently petition Him in light of His justice. It's the second way that a knowledge of God's justice shapes us. God's people confidently petition Him in light of His justice. Well, through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And so in this section, he interceded for the surrounding nations. Now we read here for the first time in the Bible that a man initiates a conversation with God. Abraham's immediate concern, it may have been for his nephew Lot and his family. So he had family there in Sodom. He wanted to get them out before this coming judgment. However, a larger concern surfaced here, and it was this. Will God deal justly with the righteous? Will he destroy them along with the wicked, or will they be saved and spared from God's judgment? And We see the conflict in this passage starting in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So again, his concern for the righteous here in those cities, are they going to be killed too? And three times, in three different ways, he asks in verses 23 through 25, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you put the righteous to death with the wicked? Now, the Bible speaks here and, and many other places about there being two types of people. The righteous... And the wicked, I know that's not popular to talk about in today's contemporary setting. The Bible is ever so clear. There's a group called the righteous and a group called the wicked. God distinguishes between the two. He judges between the two. Ultimately, He decides and determines who's righteous and who's wicked. Not us, not our cultural standards or society. And we see here there's a line drawn between the two. The righteous are those who are joined to the Lord by faith. And so the very concept of righteousness is connected to the covenant. The covenant that we see God initiating towards Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 15, we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? As righteousness. So it's through believing in God, through faith in God that we receive the righteousness of God. That his righteousness is credited to our account. It's the only way to be saved. Not through your own righteousness. Not through your own works or good efforts, but by receiving freely the righteousness of God that comes to everyone who turns in faith to believe in God. You see, only those who are united to God by faith are those counted among the righteous. God is perfect. He is right in all of His ways. And when you're united to the Lord by faith, you follow Him in righteousness. And that's evident and seen through walking in obedience to God's Word. Now, the wicked, on the other hand, live outside of the covenant, not in faith, but in unbelief. Lives characterized by a a lack of concern about God, not really caring about His Word, not really concerned with God's standards, judging themselves and others by their own standards or popular cultural standards. It's characterized by a disobedience to God's Word because the wicked are just really not that interested in God. And his word. And the Bible makes it clear that the wicked are destined for God's eternal judgment in hell. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus said about the wicked, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Which group are you counted among? That's an important question for you to consider here this morning. It's an important question to consider when you come to God's Word. Are you counted among the righteous or are you counted among the wicked? And whose standards are you making that judgment by? God's standards or by human standards? You see, by human standards, the line of judgment between the wicked and the righteous, it often gets drawn in a place that's really convenient for people. Right? The line gets drawn where we kind of at least barely make the cut. Hey, we haven't done that much that's bad. We haven't done that much that's wrong. We've done enough good, so we're not as bad as other people. It might seem right that God would judge someone like Hitler, that God would judge someone like Osama bin Laden, but not people in Charlotte. It's a beautiful place. People smile. People hang out. They're nice. Southern hospitality. People are friendly. This isn't a place with wickedness. I mean, that's just other parts of the world that are dealing with wickedness. You see, by human standards, people think as long as you don't do too much that's wrong, you're fine. You can be good enough. But God has different standards. God is holy. He is absolutely perfect in all of His ways. And therefore, His standards require perfection. His standards require holiness. You see, that's bad news for us because you and I have broken God's holy standards, His righteous standards. We were born into this world in a sinful condition. And we've shown that because we commit sins. Sinful people commit sins and give themselves over to sins and aren't concerned with God's righteousness or His standards. And at our core, at its core, it's our sin is against God. In our sin, we've broken God's commandments. In our sin, we have rejected His loving authority over us. And the consequence for our sin is God's judgment and His wrath. And God is right to judge us for our sin. You see, the good news contained in the Bible is this, that through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, that God actually takes Wicked people and reconciles them to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ, taking wicked people, forgiving them, and declaring them righteous through his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, those who put their faith in Jesus rely not on their own righteousness, but on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's important for us to understand righteousness and and, and wickedness. And that's the beginning of what Abraham was wrestling with here. Now remember, and let's be clear, Abraham was not questioning God's judgment of the wicked. He was clear it's right for God to judge the wicked. His appeal to the Lord was concerned with God's wrath not being poured out on the righteous along with the wicked. Like, God, are you going to take them out too because of the wicked? Well, look at verse 25. It continues on. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now, I certainly think Abraham's growing in his confidence and trust in the Lord at this point, but he's already believed. He's already trusted God. So don't hear this ultimately as him questioning God's justice. I'd say hear it as an appeal to God's justice. He's appealing to God's justice. God is the judge of all the earth, and if human judges are expected to do what is right, to rule with justice, how much more will the judge of all the earth do what is just? So the resolution to this tension, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's the, the resolution that God always and only makes the right calls. He is perfectly just. Human judges get it wrong at times. That's why our justice system has built into it a way to appeal, courts to appeal to, appealing a decision having another judge review the case and, and take a look at it if we understand that justice was not served by one particular judge in court. You know, even in the world of sports, consider how upset sports fans get when a ref makes the wrong call. I know, because I was at a Little League game yesterday, and I had to restrain myself. Other parents did not. Don't be too hard on those guys. Anyways, if we're too hard on them, who's going to want to call games anymore? But, but people are hard when, when referees get it wrong. You go to a Panthers game, the ref makes a controversial call. They show the replay up on the screen. It becomes evident to everyone uh, that was not a penalty. That wasn't passing interference. What happens? The fans go nuts booing the stadium goes crazy at the injustice of this wrong call i'm a fan of baseball there's even talk now of having a strike zone that's run by a computer because fans we are tired of a human eye evaluating whether a 100 mile ball that's low and outside is indeed a strike or a ball let's just give it to a computer we're tired of all these wrong calls that seem to affect the outcome of our team winning the game you see human judges have flaws they have limitations biases that lead to injustice, some human judges are just evil, but it's not so with the judge of all the earth. All that he does is right. He never gets it wrong. He's not in need of a replay. His judgments don't need review. People try to question his judgments and act like they need review, but his judgments are certainly not in need of review. He always does what is right. He's the standard of justice. He's the standard of righteousness. So all his ways and all his judgments are just and right. He cannot and does not make wrong judgments. He doesn't make unfair judgments. The judge of all the earth only does what is right. And that gives us, as God's people, confidence to persevere in entrusting ourselves to Him, especially when we don't understand what's going on in our lives or the world around us. How often do we find ourselves living in that type of margin where we don't understand what's going on in life? We don't understand God's judgment or His decisions. Well, brothers and sisters, it's in those moments that we find our confidence in remembering who God is. We can know, we must know, all His ways are right. Brother and sister in the Lord, we we find comfort in God's character, not in our circumstances. Circumstances will often leave us confused, scratching your head. And and sometimes you come to us as pastors and you you ask us why, and we have to give you the answer. Like, why did this happen in your life? Why is this happening? We have to give you the answer, "I I don't know. I don't know. My family attended a funeral a week ago. A mother, the four kids, two of them went with our kids in high school, found out she had leukemia and ten days later died. She was a coworker of my wife, a former teacher of one of our kids. Our sons play baseball together. Why was she taken? Now she, praise God, knew the Lord, was saved. We don't know. I could look at my kids and say, I don't know. It's hard to sit there and see kids mourning the loss of their mom, Thanksgiving, Christmas, coming up, thinking about their life experience, all they'll go through without their mom. That's hard to think about. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. I don't know why the Lord chose to take her, but I know he's good. I know his ways are right. Our circumstances will often leave us confused, but God's character brings clarity. When God does what is just And He only does what is just and what is right. We know He does what's good. Our God is good. All His ways are good. All His ways are right. And we find ourselves living in that margin where we don't understand what's going on around us. May we be reminded God can be trusted. What we do know is His character plainly revealed to us. Our brother Shilin put it like this. He is good and His ways are just. Worthy of our faith and trust, the judge of all the earth shall do right. Brothers and sisters, we can rest our entire lives on that truth. We can rest our eternal life on that truth. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. It's the confidence that Abraham had. And, and notice what that confidence led him to. It's the rest of the passage. I spent so much time on this because we don't want to just look at this negotiation and miss what led to this negotiation. This bold negotiation came out of a confidence in God's character. You see, Abraham seemed to think there were righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the rest of the chapter contains his petition to the Lord. It's a bold petition before the throne of God. And it became his petition that the Lord, supposing there were 50 righteous people in the city. Why 50? Did he just pull that out of the sky? Well, not exactly sure where that number came from. It could be this number was considered about half the size of a small town or city at that time. Uh, there's places like Amos chapter 5, verse 3, where we see a town or a small city would be able to field an army of about 100 men. So, so perhaps what Abraham was doing here was starting with a number that would be half of that city. If, if half of them were righteous, if there were equal parts righteous and wicked, Lord, would you spare the city then? And the Lord's response in verse 26 brought resolution. If, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Notice this is for the sake of the righteous. For their sake, God would withhold His judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. This wasn't saying He would leave the guilty unpunished. That would not be justice. God would spare these cities from being destroyed in that scenario, meaning He would delay His judgment on the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Now, while this first petition brought resolution that God would deal justly with the righteous, Abraham petitioned five more times. Five more times he pled for mercy. And in verse 27, he kind of acknowledges, like, who am I to petition the Lord? He confessed that he was but dust and ashes, but then he's like, okay, I'm going to go for it. Right? Who am I to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. He boldly proceeded to ask if the Lord would destroy the whole city if there were 45 righteous People. And we, we see that God was not offended by this. He didn't cast him away because of this. Uh, God rather welcomed Abraham to intercede and to approach him boldly. You see, Abraham was in a covenant relationship with God. And God gave him the right, so to speak, to do that as a part of his family, to come and and boldly approach him and request of him. God had just shared a meal with Abraham and displayed the fellowship that he had initiated with him. And therefore, God gladly and willingly received his petition, which is helpful for us to know as Christians that those in fellowship with God, we have access to approach him boldly. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been brought into covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And therefore, God welcomes us to boldly petition Him in prayer. I wonder how that would affect your prayer life this week. No, God welcomes your bold prayers. And I wonder, brother and sister of the Lord, what keeps us from approaching the Lord boldly in prayer? You know, fitting with the context of this passage, I think one encouragement to us don't give up praying for family members or friends who don't know Jesus. Those ones who seem to have no interest in God, who may be taking pot shots in the past because of your faith in Jesus. The ones you're wondering with, what do I do? Do I have another awkward conversation at Thanksgiving? Like, what do I do with this? Is it worth the rejection? Well, don't give up praying for them. Approach God's throne with boldness. He welcomes those prayers. He, he, he invites us to boldly approach him in prayer and indeed the Lord works through those prayers. In verse 29, Abraham continued to petition with different scenarios of the number of righteous people in the city, kind of counting down from 40 to 30 to 20, all the way down in verse 32 to 10. And each time, the Lord responded, "No. I would not judge them if there were 40. No, I would not judge them if there were 30, if there were 20, if there were 10." The Lord responded as few, if there were as few as 10, Righteous people in Sodom, the city, would be spared. Why stop at 10? Well, I count to five or all the way down to one. Why why stop at 10? Well, it seems the principle of God's justice had been established. There was no need to continue on. That's why the the scene ended so quickly. We see this interaction in verse 33. It ended, and the Lord went his way. Like abruptly, like the Lord was out. Principle clearly established. He had given Abraham what he needed to trust him. He'd strengthened Abraham. He had assured him of his justice. Well, I ask to you, who has changed that day? God or Abraham? Well, God doesn't change. He doesn't need to change. All his ways are right. And just, it's perfect and holy and right in all His ways, full of knowledge, full of wisdom, full of goodness and mercy and love. You see, this petition and negotiation of sorts, rather, was used by God to change Abraham. This interaction took place to teach Abraham about God's justice, not to persuade God to do what was right. This interaction served to deepen Abraham's knowledge of God's righteousness and his justice and his holy character that he might teach the truth about God to the next generation and indeed to the nations. This interaction between God and Abraham made it clear, God will not punish the righteous along with the wicked. And we see next week, Lord William chapter 19, that Lot and his two daughters, they were rescued, they made it out. They were saved from God's wrath and His judgment and escaped while the cities were being destroyed. And the foundation for God's judgment that we'll read next week in chapter 19 is clearly seen here in his interaction with Abraham. Abraham overestimated. There were no righteous ones in the cities. Lot and his family were not citizens of the city. They were rather sojourners, just traveling and passing through, so to speak. God led them out, and His judgment was poured out on the wicked. Well, the final answer to that question, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked, was given in Jesus Christ. That was the moment at the cross when God swept away the righteous one for the wicked. Jesus was the only righteous one who ever lived. Perfectly loved God. Perfectly loved His neighbor. Perfectly honored God and obeyed Him in all that He did. And on the cross... Christ was swept away for the wicked. For people like you and me. The righteous one put to death for the wicked. In our place, condemned, He stood. The innocent taking the punishment for the guilty. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous... For the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. At the cross, God swept away the righteous, the only one who's righteous, in the place of the wicked. He bore the wrath. Jesus bore the wrath of God's judgment as a substitute to pay the penalty for sins that you and I have committed. To pay the penalty for the sins of those who would trust in Him. And just as God prepared Abraham to teach him the ways of justice and to prepare him that God's judgment is coming, today the church proclaims out to the world, to the surrounding nations, God's judgment is coming. How are your sins being forgiven? How are your sins being dealt with? And the church proclaims that in Christ, and in Christ alone, there is salvation from God's judgment. In Christ and in Christ alone there is reconciliation with the God who created us if indeed you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ today. If that's you, if you've come this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian, it's the most important thing you could do. You can be made right with God today if you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Don't leave here without talking to one of our members or one of our pastors at the top of the ramp afterwards. We'd love to share more with you about how you can be forgiven of your sins and made right with the God who created you. You see, our faith as Christians is in Jesus who willingly took the judgment for sin as He died on the cross, God's wrath being poured out on Him there as He hung on the cross at Calvary, suffering the penalty for the sins of all those who would trust in Him. God raised him from the dead three days later as proof that in Christ there is a way provided, the only way given for us to be forgiven of our sins against God and declared righteous in his holy sight. Jesus is the only one who could satisfy God's righteous requirements. Jesus is the only one who satisfies God's wrath and judgment. And if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be made right with him. And for those who are in Christ We put our confidence in God who always does what is right. He is good and His ways are just, worthy of our faith and trust. The judge of all the earth shall do right. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to take the truth of this Word that You would plant it deep within us and, and bring fruit in our lives for your glory. We pray that you would draw near to us and, and lead us into a deeper confidence as your people in your character. Uh, Lord, forgive us for how often we look at our circumstances and, and question your goodness. Lord, we pray you'd grow us in our confidence in you, that you would comfort us even as we close this time out singing together about the, the hope that we have in your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. amen.